Greetings, Jim Colucci. Thank you. Thank you. Nice <laughs> to see you. Golden Girls historian. Before we start, I want to show you, I wore one of my many Golden Girl shirts. I saw it when we signed on and I realized I should be wearing mine. That's the Target Pride Golden Girl shirt. And I it is, which I had to drive which I had to drive all over town to get. And I have my Golden Girls coaster. Love it. And then I also have, uh, when I uh, I had a, when I had employees, uh, they gave me a set of Golden Girls uh, altar candles. And uh, what else do I have? I have the Funko Pop series. And I, I think I have like five t-shirts. And the geeky tiki's and all of the new. Oh, they, I have a Dorothy tiki. They keep and, coming out with new stuff. They're they're no fools. These mar merchandisers. They know that with they're they're selling stuff out at the moment it comes out, and then they come and, up with some new design. And is it just queens like our age buying them, or? I don't think it's just queens, but I do think that there are demographics that buy the stuff and that watched the show. I think that there. The major ones might be gay men and women, but then also there were always women of a certain age. And mm -hmm. one of the miracles of the Golden Girls as a show, and I think it has translated into merchandise, is that it's one of those shows, and I shouldn't say one of those shows, because really Golden Girls and I Love Lucy were always the only shows that ever did this, in my opinion, that jumped generations. And so you would have fans who are ardent fans of the show, who when you do the math, they weren't even they weren't watching it the first time because they weren't born yet. And right. I Love Lucy did that. I mean, I wasn't around in the 50s when I Love Lucy was airing, but I'm a huge fan. And Golden Girls did that. And really, they were the only two shows on that list. I think that we will start to see in future years and even now, thanks to streaming, we'll see friends join that list and maybe sign. I think so too. The other yeah. ones and The Office. You know, I have 15-year-old nieces who watch Friends and they weren't around when Friends was first on. So I think we're going to start to see a few more shows join that list thanks to the ubiquity of some of the old shows now and the way you can find them in streaming. But for a long time, Golden Girls was an, an anomaly. And mm. you can see that in the merchandising too. A lot of these people buying Golden Girls stuff and these shirts and these mugs weren't around in 1985 or even 1992. Is that the year it premiered was 1985, right? Yes, right. I was a, well, shit, I might as well say it. I was a junior in high school. <laughs> and, oh, so we're I the same age. I was about to be a junior in high school too, or was I about to be a sophomore? I think I was about to be a junior. Yeah, and so it was wild to, and back then, you know, Saturday Night TV was still a thing. Right. Like, people still watched TV at home on Saturday nights. And, um, and I can remember, so, okay, let's get into the origin story. So how did it come about? Because I find it hard to believe that in 1984, 85, that NBC was sitting around and thinking like, oh, you know what we need on the schedule is a show about, quote, old ladies. So how, what was, like, what was the origin? Yeah, it, I mean, you're right. Normally, then and unfortunately now, there wouldn't be a situation where networks are saying, you know what we don't do enough of? Shows about old people. And it's crazy because... Old people are the ones watching television, especially broadcast television, especially now in the age of streaming. And old people, for the most part, are the ones who have the disposable income to buy the cars that you're advertising. Right. It's always been a broken system in terms of Hollywood seeming to always be chasing a young, cool factor. And yet merchandising and, and advertisers should really be reaching for someone else. There's some old flawed study, apparently from the 60s that showed that people choose their toothpaste brand when they're 18 and never vary from then on, which is A, not true, and B, not everything's toothpaste. I, I mean, that's right. been credited for a long time, but for some reason, it because it, it, it kind of bolstered the built-in ageism that we have in our society and in Hollywood, gave them an excuse to continue chasing 18-year-olds rather than everybody else. But you're right, there was no reason back then they would have been looking for old people. It's really partly due to the fact that NBC had at its helm a maverick like Brandon Tartikoff, who mm. was a what I would call a true impresario in television. And you don't get those particularly in television very often. People in Hollywood love to make safe bets. And they all if something worked on one network, let's copy it on our network and let's clone right. it. And 
the irony is that's often the way to come up with a flop because if it worked once, that means you should try something else and, and fish where the fish aren't and, right. and really diversify and look for a new angle rather than go for the thing that'll be a pale imitation. But that's not how people in Hollywood think. They, they want to make the safe bet and nobody thinks they're, people think I'm not going to get fired if I clone friends, but I will get fired if I go for this crazy show about old people and it doesn't work, then they're going to say, why did you spend money on that? So normally where TV is run by cowardice and short-sighted thinking, Tartikoff was a maverick and an impresario and really wanted to think of things that they could do that hadn't been done before. And sometimes that yields great dividends and sometimes it yields manimal. You know, right. sometimes there are terrible- <laughs> I remember manimal. <laughs> yes. They, what, the, in television, there's an expression they call it in, in development. They call it swinging for the fences. And when you're an executive who swings for the fences, which means you try to hit a home run every time, sometimes you're going to strike out and sometimes you're going to hit a home run. And it really, you know, it, it depends upon how safe you feel in your job and how much leeway you think the corporate money people will give you. But Tartikoff did it. And so there are various ways that it has been said that the idea came about. And I think that it's, I think it was actually all of these things happening at once. But Artikoff talks about in his memoir about how he was visiting an elderly aunt in Florida and he saw kind of the crotchety interplay among her and her friends and how they talked to each other and thought it was funny. And he also talks about watching the movie How to Marry a Millionaire with his nieces. And it was, you know, if you remember that movie, was Betty Grable yeah. and whatever. And it was, I believe it was Barry, Betty Grable. It was Betty Hutton. I confused them and I haven't seen the movie in a long time. Grable, okay. I okay. think. Okay. <laughs> Edit that part out where I don't know who's in the movie. No, <laughs> I, 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 have, I haven't seen it in decades. But I do remember that it's about several women trying to make it in New York. And it's the, kind of a buddy comedy about three women mm -hmm. bonding together. And so he had in mind, huh, okay, older people and how they get along women bonding together and then there is a famous moment that is definitely part of the history of the show and how it came about and it was called the miami nice moment or the miami nice incident and what that was was a promo night for nbc's 1984 schedule and a lot of times these affiliate dinners where nbc throws a dinner to introduce the heads of every local nbc station or sometimes it's called an upfront dinner when there it's an upfront presentation to the advertising community in New York about what you could advertise in this year and where you could spend your ad dollars. It was one of those. It was an affiliate dinner, an upfront dinner, something where NBC had to throw what could what usually turned out to be a deadly dull rubber chicken dinner. <laughs> okay. Introduce people to its 1984 schedule. And the gag was that as they're talking about Miami Vice, which of course became a huge hit on NBC right before the Golden Girls, they had scripted patter in the teleprompter for the two presenters who were Selma Diamond, who was then on Night Court, and Doris Roberts, who was then on Remington Steel. Uh -huh. And they gave these two comedy power powerhouses this shtick to do, which, you know, could come off really cheesy, but they really hit it out of the park. And so the shtick was that one of them would say, there's this new show, and she'd strain to read it. It's called Miami Nice. Well, I guess that's about old grandmothers in Miami. And then and she'd do this whole shtick about it being about grand. And the other one corrected, no, honey, it's not. That doesn't say nice. It's called Miami Vice. It's about cops. Oh, but what normally was such a dull affair came to came alive on that stage at that moment. And everybody, they had everybody laughing that there could be the show called Miami Nice. And it would be about old ladies in Miami. To the point where Branda uh, Tartikoff, after the dinner, started really thinking, there's something here. Let's see, old women, I saw my aunt, the idea of women getting along together, old women in Miami. I think that he was smart enough to see that there was nothing, no one else was going for this subject matter. No one else was going for this audience. This was something they could create that would not be a clone of everything else. If it works, mm -hmm. it could work great. And also, I know that they had learned at NBC from the Cosby Show casting experience, and I'm sure other networks have learned this at other points, that unfortunately, when there are underserved communities, like the Black community was for a long time in television, and you could argue still is, right. um, that 
there is such a large talent pool of actors who are not working. And yeah. there's so many great people to pick from. And they found- So you know, did they have, did they have an idea like from the get-go was like- Well, they found, they shortly found out because they had, they learned from the Cosby show you know, of course, in light of what we know about Bill Cosby now, this is an ironic quote, but what they told me at the time was, if we could have cloned Bill Cosby, we could have found 10 other women who'd be great as his wife and 10 other kids who'd be great as his son and his daughter and whatever, because there was such a talent pool of people who weren't working enough. And they realized the same thing was true of older women. It's still true today that you get to a certain Mm -hmm. age and the roles dry up. And there's always a pool of women in their 50s, 60s, 70s who are at the top of their game in terms of talent, but they don't get the roles. And so they knew from, from early on, hey, wait a minute, there's also gonna be a, a lot of amazing women we could be putting on television. So with all those ideas in mind, they went on an NBC corporate retreat, kind of fleshed out that they wanted something about older women. And as the story goes, Susan Harris, who had created Soap and Benson- Brilliant show. And had written Maud's abortion for the for Maud and really yeah. had been working in television as one of TV's top writers overall, never mind female writers. Uh, she was associated with this company, Witt Thomas Harris, Paul Witt being her husband, Tony Thomas, Marlowe's brother. All of them were three producers together. And Paul and Tony came into NBC with another writer to pitch something else one day. And that whoever, I don't even know who that writer was. Nobody would tell me because I guess this person would be kicking him or herself. But uh, that writer's pitch didn't sell and they were all walking out when Warren Littlefield, who was number two at NBC under Tartikoff said, you know, Paul and Tony, hang out for a minute. I have an idea that we have that we want to run by you. And he told them, you know, Susan would be perfect for this. Would Susan be interested in writing this show and he told them the Miami Vice, Miami Nice concept. And Susan was at that point burned out on television. There'd been a terrible experience where the moral majority arose to get soap canceled. And, you know, she, I know, was sick of being censored and being limited and shackled by, tel- by broadcast TV. But Paul and Tony realized how often does a chance come around to write about older women? And that's something Susan would love to do, They knowing her, her, her interests and her talent. And so they brought her the idea and she was in. She loved the idea. And so it all seems to be such a happy accident that all of these factors came together at exactly the right time with exactly the right far- farsighted people to right. invest in them. Because again, this could happen today where you could get all these people interested in an idea and then the network could say, are you crazy? We don't like old people. It just all came together at the right in the right way. Who was the first? Uh, who was the first cast? Well, they are the first cast. I mean, the the women we know are the oh, first cast. Because so, there are all these stories about all these other women that were like, "Oh, I went up for Golden Girls." Well, they like, did and they didn't. So what's interesting is they decided that what they were going to do is launch this nationwide cast casting call. Because why just go to the obvious tried and true actresses? We know what a big talent pool there is out there. And we mm. can find some actresses who might be theater actresses in Chicago or San Francisco or blah, blah, blah. And we could get amazing people. And so cheaper. they, well, maybe cheaper too. Yes, true. But I, I they, they let's, let's say it this way. They told me it was to find all the best talent. And even if it wasn't the most obvious name. And so they did see hundreds of women in New York and LA on tape and other cities. The irony being that they went with, of the four, three very well-known network television sitcom names. And only Estelle Getty was the newcomer. And oh, yeah. the irony would be that when they read those the script and saw those four character breakdowns, where it was three women ostensibly in their 50s, even though the, the actresses they ended up picking were in their early 60s, Betty B and, and uh, Estelle, um, but they saw that that Rose, Blanche, and Dorothy were characters 50-ish, 60-ish. That wouldn't be so hard to find. But there's this character, Sophia, mm. who's in her 80s. How do you find an actress old enough to look the part, but can, who can remember lines and who can right. do this? Because it's- And live. And, and live through the run <laughs> of the show, that's true. But it's multi-camera sitcom is, 
it's deceptive because in some ways it's an easy gig for an actor in that when you're an actor on a multi-camera sitcom, four of your five days of the week are really short because you come in right. and you run throughs and you're, you're in there for a couple hours, you work some stuff out, it's very collaborative with the director and then you're out of there and only one day a week is really long because that's your tape day and you have to stay until you get it right. But, and actors always talk about how oh, I want to get on a multi-cam sitcom because then I can have a family life and I can be home at dinner time. That's true. But the thing that's really hard about a multi-camera sitcom that really only becomes easier over time as you develop the memory muscle is that not only are you given a script on day one that you have to memorize for day five. So you only have a week and it changes every week and you have to, right. you know, it's a lot of memorization, but day by day, hour by hour, sometime between scenes during a taping, you can be given new lines, new entire pages, new entire scenes, and you perform them without, sometimes without ever having read the words before, and sometimes with only a few moments to memorize. So it's a real memory trick. And that's particularly why they worried about who's gonna play Sophia. And the right. irony is that Estelle Getty had gone through this process where she had been a an actress in New York in off-off-Broadway theater and had worked her way into Harvey Firestein's realm where she oh, played yeah. her mother in Torch Song Trilogy after really bugging him, write me apart, write me apart. <laughs> and she had really wowed people with that role in New York and wowed people with that role when it came out to LA. And when that show came to LA in 1985 in the spring, it happened to be the pilot season in which they were casting the Golden Girls. And Estelle had gone up for a role on Family Ties that she hadn't gotten. And so she was a little disillusioned with, oh God, I have to all this rejection of television. But her manager convinced her, stay through the rest of pilot season in 1985 and let's see what we can get you. And when they read the script for the Golden Girls, Estelle had her heart set on Sophia, even though Sophia wow. Italian-American and Estelle was Jewish didn't speak Italian, really would have been more comfortable, as she says in her book, and as she said multiple times throughout the series, had the character been Jewish, because she was familiar with those cadences so much. But still, she saw something in that role, and so she pursued it very aggressively, sprayed her hair silver with silver hairspray, went uh, consignment shopping and found a, a frumpy dress and that pocketbook that, that they ended up using. That's wild. went to auditions completely in character and never broke character, and just there are so many hurdles for an actor to be in cast because you've get seen first by a casting person. And if they like you, then they have to bring you back for the producers. And eventually you have to go to network. And there's a lot of people in a row who have to say yes to you. Well, yeah. Estelle jumped over every hurdle by doing that. I mean, she, they brought her back again and again because nobody could believe this woman we'd never heard of before. She'd only done this <laughs> Broadway thing. And she's going to be the first one we cast in this show because the hardest role that we thought we would cast is gonna be the first one with an unknown. They just couldn't believe it was happening that way. And they brought her back again and again, and again and again, she wowed them until she was actually the first of the forecast. Oh, that's wild. And is this true? Uh, and I think I, I think I read this in your book. Originally, Betty and Rue were- Switched. Switched. Yes. Which would have totally worked. It right, would have because they played it before and we loved them in it. Betty had played exactly. Sue Ann Nivens, who was the man-hungry one on the Mary Tyler Moore show. Rue had played Aunt Fran on Mama's Family, who was very mousy <laughs> and silly, and, and had played Vivian, who was the second banana on Maud, and so and certainly, you know, uh, uh, deferred to Maud. So she was less strong. So Rue could have been Rose and uh, Betty could have been Blanche. Uh, Rue was very kind in what she said about Betty that she says I would never have been able to do Rose like Betty did because it is true that it's hard to play a dumb character or, or a naive character because if you are as brilliant as Betty White is, who is yeah. so quick-witted, it's very hard to hide that light in your eyes and, mm. and convince people that you don't get the joke. When Dorothy makes a joke, she knows she's being funny. When Blanche makes a joke, Sometimes she's kind of inadvertently revealing what a slut she is, but a lot of times she's being deliberately funny. Sophia is yeah. definitely being deliberately funny. Rose is rarely being deliberately funny. She usually says things that are kooky and weird and show how naive she is, 
but she's not usually, it doesn't, the character herself doesn't seem to be trying to be funny. And that's hard to do, especially when you are someone like Betty, who is so funny. So Betty had to find a way to drain that brilliance out of her face and just be naive. Mm. Well, Rose is like the, Rose Nyland is the prototype for Phoebe Buffet. Yes, oh, of course. And, and it, uh, uh, the irony too is that Lisa Kudrow is another brilliant person. But it, I think it takes a certain amount of brilliance to play a dumb character. It's, yeah. there's, there's some weird conflict there. But Rue always said that when, when they would yell action, all the light would drain out of Betty's eyes. And she would just, as Rue called them, she'd give them those little orphan Annie eyes that look so oh. naive and staring. And Betty, as for as much was going on in her inner machinery about how to deliver this joke and where to hit that mark and whatever, she made it look so effortless and also sold us on the fact that Rose didn't get what she was saying. And therefore, Rose could get away with saying so much based on Betty's portrayal of her. And the writers yeah. leaned into this once they realized it that Rose could say some cutting things because she didn't mean them to be mean, but Betty just imbued them with that naivete that made that character possible. Totally, and so so now that once I have the show cast and everything, and it premieres in that fall, out of the gate, it's a hit, right? Yes, or, it, it, was it was not a slow builder. One. Yeah, No, not a slow builder. It was a hit from moment one. They couldn't believe the ratings when they first saw them, and then of course it just grew. So. It was, it was a super group of comedic talent. It was all people other than Estelle that we knew from other shows. And so I remember- And it built, it built a whole like Saturday night schedule for NBC. Cause all did. of a sudden, yeah, from eight to 11. It did. I remember you're the same age as I, so you, you remember it probably this way. It was before the internet. So mm-hmm. when, when I was always a, a TV obsessed kid. And so when I would hear that there was a new pilot being filmed for a show that sounded like it was gonna be great, I would comb TV guide and the local TV guides that came in the Sunday paper to, for yeah. any tidbit about these shows. And so I remember reading on and off through the spring of 85 that there was this show starring Betty White and B. Arthur and Rue McClanahan. And that's a super group. It's like why one a, a Mary Tyler Moore show star and two stars of Maud together. Oh my God, I can't wait for this. So I couldn't have been the only one because there must have been a lot of anticipation for, for September 14th, 1985 to yield such big ratings. But uh, it, was, it was really, yeah, it was a hit from the start. Was it um, across the board demographically or was it, because it couldn't have just been all of us little chubby fat gay boys. No, it wasn't. And that's, <laughs> because we didn't have Nielsen boxes. <laughs> no, and it goes to show that there's an adage that's true that says, if you want to write something universal, write specific. And mm. for some reason, when you give a character specific traits and ethnicity, some really things that you can hang a hat on, it doesn't alienate an audience. In other words, just because Dorothy and Sophia are Italian doesn't mean that if you're not Italian and watching the show, you're not going to like it. It gives you something to relate to, to hang on to, to say, oh, I like that about her, or that's funny about her. And so the more specific... so. The age thing is another one of those specificities, and it sets them apart from other characters on television. Mm-hmm. What ended up, ended up happening was when NBC had the pilot for the Golden Girls, and they were went out to test it, which is when they show it to test audiences who dial up whether they like it or dial down whether they don't with this little machine. They expected, okay, what's go- the problem with this show is the old people in the room are going to like it, and everybody else is it. I don't even think they were thinking about the gay audience because back in 1985, they didn't give enough attention to it. And they were shocked that everybody liked it, including little kids. And they realized that from the notes they were getting that little kids related to Sophia because she was this (laughs) tiny little character who caused mischief and talked back. And they thought she was hilarious. And so again, the, the specificity of writing these older women ended up making it universally appealing. So... So then it's, it becomes, it ran for seven seasons. Um, what do you, what do you think the strongest season is? Yeah, I am hard pressed to say there. I, I would say that rather than season by season, I divide the show into two eras, which is seasons mm. one through four and then season five through seven. And that's because it oh. was two different regimes running the show. Gotcha. And you can really see the difference However, I am hard pressed to say which one I like better. I, I vacillate on that. Mm. Seasons one through four were run by four showrunners whom all the other writers and the actors referred to as the Beatles. 
it was uh, Mort Nathan, Barry Finero, Kathy Spear, and Terry Grossman. Kathy and Terry were a married couple, still are. And the four of them came from Benson and other Thomas Harris shows. And they were, of course, with Susan guiding them because she, Susan wrote some episodes in the early seasons. They were the ones who really took the template from the pilot and fleshed it out. And those early four seasons, although there are certainly hilarious moments that go over the top, are a little more grounded in character and reality than the last yeah. three, than, the, than five, six, and seven. After season four, those four writers left and new writers took over. Mark Sotkin was the head writer. He came from Laverne and Shirley, and he brought in other writers, a lot of super talented people, Gail Parent and Tom Whedon, and uh, Richard Vaxi and Tracy Gamble had started in season four and they stayed on. Mark Cherry and, and uh, Jamie Wooten came on in season five. As we know, Mark Cherry would go on to many great things. Mitch Hurwitz started writing for the show. So a lot of amazing people in the second era. In the second era is when the show got, got more and I, I'll say cartoony, but I don't mean that in a bad way, but it got more over the top and yeah. more surreal. A lot of more surreal things would happen. They would have that, that Midsummer Night's Dream episode where the full moon was causing people to act crazy. And they would have things that happened that were crazier and over the top. However, they're still brilliant. So mm-hmm. I go back and forth. If I watch an episode from one era, I say, oh, this is the better era. And then I'll watch another one. No, this one is. I can't decide. Yeah. I know. I, I, I uh, my best friend and I, when we, uh, when we're together, we live in separate cities now. But when we're together, we always end our nights like with bourbon and at least two or three episodes of Golden Girls. And last time I was visiting him, I was like, season three is, I think, the best season. And then we watched something from I think season five, and I'm like, okay, well, season five is pretty strong too. Do you have a favorite episode? I don't, and I, I do the same thing where I go back and forth. And I, yeah. I mean, when people ask, when they really press me, I say my favorite episode is Ebb Tide's Revenge, which is the one in which Dorothy's brother, Phil, the crossdresser, dies. And yes. his widow comes to Miami for the funeral. Big and the Sally. reason I pick that one is because, yes, yes. The reason I pick that one is because it does everything a great episode of the Golden Girls does, mm. which is it is it takes on something that most shows wouldn't, which is cross-dressing. Right. So ahead of its time. And it did it did what I love when comedies do. And today, political correctness is kind of ending this approach. But comedies used to be great, I feel, when they would take something touchy, make fun of it, and make all the jokes that are politically incorrect that you know you want to make. And then which would never happen now. Right. But then completely end on a note of understanding. I call it having your cake mm. and eating it too. So <laughs> they would be able to, for that first part of the show, make all the cross-dressing jokes they wanted to about Phil, about that he was going to be wearing a teddy in his casket. They show his poker buddies come <laughs> and they're dressed like Italian widows and garbed with veils. They make all the cross-dressing jokes, but then they get to the heart of the matter at the very end so beautifully about mm-hmm. why Sophia doesn't like Phil's widow. And it is that Sophia, for as much as she makes jokes about Phil, was doing that to cover the pain of having a child who's different. And that is so true and oh. relatable. And it cuts, all of a sudden, all the jokes go aside and it, it catches you by surprise. It makes mm-hmm. me tear up every time I talk about it. It catches I know, you I've... by surprise that Sophia has these deep feelings for someone who is so tough and so jokey yeah. that she really has this deep hurt within her that she's un, uh, irrationally blamed on someone else. And then they can come to this understanding and where the, the last line of the show, rather than being a joke as it usually is, a button as they call it, was a downbeat where Sophia yeah. cries and says, my little boy is gone. And it just catches you, right? It catches your breath. And the, that a sitcom in 22 minutes could do that, could make you laugh against your better judgment because you know you're laughing at somebody that you that mm-hmm. is different and you shouldn't be laughing at, and then show you the humanity of the situation. I am so floored by that episode. And I've probably seen that episode, probably no exaggeration, 100 times. Yes. I cry every single time at the end too. of it. Yeah. And, and so I want to bring up something since you uh, since we talked about Phil. Uh, well, actually, before I get to Phil, do you have a least favorite episode? Because I oh, didn't. everybody everybody picks on certain episodes. People pick on the empty nest. Uh, That's the off with, with Rita Moreno and Paul Dooley. And uh, there's there's a couple others that I have never particularly cared for, even though they did try to take on an issue. So I give them I give them props. I've never cared for brother. Can you spare that jacket? Because That's my other it's least favorite. Very heavy-handed. 
Um, yeah. So, you know, occasionally you try something and it goes a little too far. I mean, I give them credit for trying. All right. That's my other, that's my other least favorite episode. That's funny. Uh, okay. So talking about Phil, I feel like Phil was the only child that was consistently represented on the show. Well, Gloria, there although consist- she was two different actresses, but yes, two different she, actresses. she was always called Gloria at least. That's true because the sometimes the consistency, like it, I don't oh. know, it took me years to just finally like let it go. You have it was to driving let it go. me crazy. You have to let it go. And today shows are more careful. Even back then, any show oh. kept kept what was called a bible and they were supposed mm-hmm. to keep this document that kept track of everything they'd ever said about anybody's family or anybody's job or all the details so that they could be consistent. Golden Girls technically did keep a Bible, but they didn't care. The, the writers have told me, <laughs> I don't know if this was true of other shows particularly, but first of all, in 1985 to 1992, they didn't foresee, and they didn't know there'd be syndicated reruns. So they knew we'd mm. be watching things maybe once a night at five or 11 o'clock, but they never foresaw DVDs. They never foresaw there would be streaming, there'd be Hulu, marathons. there'd be Disney Plus, there'd be marathons. They didn't foresee that we, w- and that there'd be an internet where we could have chat rooms, where we could dissect these shows and, and compare notes with each other and say, hey, yeah, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> they, didn't, they didn't foresee any of that. So to them, as TV writers, which is a, a can be a long job, you can be there long into the night trying to make a scene work, they just wanted to get through the week. And so yeah. if somebody came in with an idea for Blanche's kid or Dorothy's kid that made sense that week, and could get them through the week and be funny and cute and 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 heartbreaking. Good, and we'll worry right. about consistency later. And so they they had so many inconsistencies. I mean, the names of Blanche's children changed all the time. When you think about Dorothy's story about getting pregnant in high school, in the backseat of Rudabaker, and then Kate, who's the older child, shows up and she's only like twenty something. Right, like sixty. It's like Dorothy, were you in high school at thirty two? Like, it doesn't make sense. But you, you just have to let it go. Yeah, exactly. Like I said, it took me probably, I literally just let it go four or five years ago. You have to. Um, it's like Gilligan's Island. I, I, I actually view them similarly in that way. Exactly. Like you just have to stop trying to logic it out. Why is Dorothy's high school reunion being held in Florida in their living room? Who knows? She went to school right. in Brooklyn. Why are they holding the, the reunion there? Just... I just watched that episode last night, as a matter of fact. Was um, was Designing Women the only show to kind of spring out of the popularity of the Golden Girls at that time? The time, but it certainly set a template for future shows. So, Sex in the City. Sex in the City being one of them. Yeah, I, I talked in, in, in my book all about how Designing Women was the Southern Golden Girls and Sex in the City was the New York Golden Girls. Mm-hmm. And Living Single was the black or urban, as the, they would call it, Golden Girls. Right. And Noah's Ark was the gay black Golden Girls. And Desperate Housewives was the suburban Golden Girls. There, it, there hadn't, had technically been a show before the Golden Girls about four female characters, and that's the facts of life. And mm-hmm. they, they also align along the same axes where there's a smart one and a tough one and a, and a, and a vapid one. So you could give the facts of life some credit. However, actually created with a whole gaggle of girls. Right. And, you know, it was only winnowed down to those four. And they found that formula, I would say, at least partly by accident, but you have to give them some credit. Well, and also I think that that show changed as a result of Golden Girls too. Like it became, you know what I mean? Like it, it I mean, that's all I heard. I saw something that referred to Facts of Life as the little show that could not long ago. Cause listen, I used to watch it. <laughs> I watched it from Molly Ringwald, <laughs> like on. All right, so now I, I want to get into a little bit of some dishy stuff. Okay. Did they really hate each other? Each other, no. I, the only, there, there were, were there two sources. Individual? Well, there were two major sources of conflict. One of them was everyone with Estelle. And here's what happened. And and everyone regrets it. And, and Estelle was beloved as a person. No one disliked her as a person. But Estelle, first of all, probably had the beginnings of the dementia that would claim her life. But back yeah. then, no one yeah. knew that. But Estelle also had a terrible problem with stage fright. And when you add dementia to that, it's just a bad oh, cocktail. Because Estelle, when you think about it, she had come into this as a theater actor. And when you are in a Broadway show or an off-Broadway show, you memorize that script once and it never changes. 
playwright is God in, in, in theater. So it doesn't change. So Stell memorized that play once, and then, as she would say, and as a lot of actors say, then you add some act of it. Once you're confident in the lines, then you feel fine to emote and move and whatever, because you you don't you don't have to think about what you're gonna just comes. Right. But with as I said with sitcom, everything's changing every moment. And that was terror for her because mm. she did it apparently turned out have a physical problem and was used to a completely different style of acting and was acting opposite opposite three pros from the sitcom world who were so used to changes. And so she was so intimidated. And what happens mm. with stage fright is the more you fear you're gonna screw up, the more you screw up. The more you screw up, the more you fear you're gonna screw up. And it snowballs. And so Estelle had terrible trouble remembering lines, getting through speeches. She would be humiliated when they would have to start over in front of the audience and they'd have to do it 20 times to get her to get it right. Yeah. And what ended up happening too, and she would also hilariously write her lines on things on the, on the table, on the salt takers. She'd be writing little cheat sheets for herself. But what ended up happening too is that why, in the, especially in the beginning when the director would not let them use cue cards. Again, when you're an actor and you use cue cards and you're off reading something off the distance, you can see that they're, they're looking off in the distance. So it's a bad way to go. But with the director not allowing her that security blanket of the cue cards, she really panicked and would screw up in front of the audience to the point where they would let the audience go at the end of a long night and then do what they call pickups in television, which is do just a couple of quick moments that you didn't get right the first time. But shows hate doing pickups because you want the live audience reaction. And also it means that you're there really late if you had to resort to that. And so the other actresses had a little bit of a resentment toward Estelle that they thought either she was out partying with her new LA life, having moved to LA mm. from New York and having uh, uh, really caught onto the gay scene and be befriended all the young gays and partying with them. So they thought she was either partying or wasn't taking it seriously enough and they didn't realize what a problem she really had. And she was causing them to have to work late. So it was just a, a resentment there. But as I said, everywhere else they loved her. It was, she was really a glue that held the cast together in terms of being a, a really loving, warm person. The other conflict that's legendary is between Betty and Dee. And it was really mostly one-sided in that Dee found it funny, I think, to have a nemesis in Betty. That was just Dee's personality. And really, they were oil and water in terms of yeah. their lives and their personalities. Betty is Little Miss Sunshine in real life. She puts a positive spin on everything and she's a perpetual optimist, which is why she's 99 years old and still with us. Mm -hmm. B had a cloud over her head a, a lot of the time. She had a lot of tough things happen in her life. She, her husband left her and her mother died in the first season, as did Betty's. And she just, she was easily hurt. Whereas mm. Betty on the inside, it's funny, Betty's grandmotherly and sweet on the outside, but really tough and strong on the inside. B's the reverse. She's got that, she had that really tough exterior, but was so vulnerable and easily hurt on the inside. And the problem with that is that people thought the way to engage with B was to play rough because they mm. thought she's, oh, she's Dorothy, she can take it. And that was the absolute wrong way to handle B because B was so easily hurt. And B also saw that Betty was the opposite of her. And so B assumed that Betty's sweetness was all an act because she could see how strong Betty was underneath. And so she thought it was bullshit. And mm. she, B hated bullshit. So they were set up to, and it's not bullshit. Betty is a lovely person, but she's strong. I mean, it's a great combination. They were set up to have conflict just from that. Then you add to the fact that B was a theater person and kind of a theater snob, whereas Betty came from live TV and game shows. I had an amazing actress too, but you know, B saw the pedigree not being the same, what she wanted it to be. And B came from the Norman Lear school of sitcoms where everything was an extreme close-up and it was played yeah. for high emotion, like a stage play, where everything was played big and loud. Oh, that's Betty, true. Betty came from the Mary, the Mary Tyler Moore Show school, which was like character <laughs> comedy. And so it was completely different. And so the, even their approaches to the material were different. Betty was able to go in and out of character, again, because she's such a brilliant woman, that when they would go cut, Betty would be back to being Betty, and she would even engage with the audience and joke around and keep them happy and keep them comfortable through a long night. B wanted to stay Dorothy. Once right. she had it, she wanted to not get it. And, she went, and so Betty, being a hostess with the audience, drove her crazy. 
Betty would be off book from moment one because she's a genius and can remember lines from the moment she sees them. B needed to be on book until the last minute and thought mm -hmm. that Betty was just showing off and trying to make them look bad. So everything, oh, wow. you could, everything you could think of, they were the opposite. And yet as friends on screen, they had such chemistry. So B liked to turn that all into having a nemesis because she thought that was funny. And so she would use the C word for Betty. No way. Behind her back with other people. She thought it was funny. I think Betty to an extent thought it was funny, but also it, it, enough was enough after a while. Well, there was a quote, I think Frank uh, said it, that uh, that's attributed to B when asked about the feud. It was never as bad as Laverne and Shirley. Yes, that was something she said directly to Frank. And, <laughs> and you know, Laverne and Shirley was known for their cast battles. And right. Golden Girls, I didn't really hear of too many open battles among the women. I heard of a couple snipes that they said one week or another, but you can honestly, even a cast that really does genuinely love each other. I've been, I've written about shows for a long time. I've been there to observe some talking behind people's back or some, you know, some side remarks. It happens when you're with that, when you're with people for seven years, day in, day out for that long, doing mm. something creative where you have conflicts just in what you think it's going to happen where you have some resentment of somebody. And it, so you catch anybody in a given day. I didn't, I didn't find from what I was told that there was a lot of open warfare. Mm. I just felt that, yes, there was that kind of mostly one way resentment that he had for Betty and thought was funny to play it out. Did they, uh, did they stay in touch with each other after the show? Like any of the cast or just kind of everyone went their own way? I think they did. I don't think they were best friends. I don't know if they would get together. They did during the run of the show. Estelle would have birthday parties and they'd all come. And there are certainly photos of them all at lunch during the run of the show. Uh, when when somebody would get married, others would be there. When when Rue Rue had well, when <laughs> Rue got married, yeah, that's what I meant. Because she got married so many times. When B had her her one woman show on Broadway, Rue went to that. And uh, oh. so they certainly maybe not all four of them together, but B and I know Betty and Rue stayed really close. Everyone checked in on Estelle once they realized she was ill, and they mm. tried to stay in as much as much touch as they could. Um, and I know B crossed paths with them. B was a little bit of a loner too in, in later life. So I, I wouldn't say that they hung out like we fantasize but that we want to hear they did, but they were right. they were friends to an extent. I read uh, recently, uh, did B leave because she was tired of being the butt of jokes? Was that a contributing factor? It was, although it had been earlier on and it had been mostly addressed. B, B gets a wanderlust when she's on a show. She left Maude too. I mean, Maude could have kept going. There were plans for Maude to move to DC and become a congresswoman and B said no enough oh, is wow. enough. Oh, uh, wow. And B said no is enough is enough. And and she was feeling the same about the Golden Girls and had been saying so before season seven. Okay, this is gonna be my last one. Maybe this is my last one. She, she just didn't like, she didn't find a challenge in playing a character for mm. too long. And there are a lot of actors like that. But it is also true that in the first few years of the show, the writers had engaged in a little too much what, of what came to be known as Dorothy batching. And yeah. when you think about it, it makes sense because when you call Sophia old, well, so Estelle wasn't in her eighties, that was age makeup. When you call Rose dumb, well, Betty knows she's not dumb. When you call Rue a, or Blanche a slut, Rue, you know, Rue made jokes about her and her husbands or whatever, but Rue knew that she was no slut like Blanche. Right. Roll off the actress's backs. But when you call a character ugly, how does the actor not take that to heart? And so yeah. B had a really unfair burden there where she was being made fun of every week. And as I said, she was so vulnerable and easily. Right. People didn't realize that because she was tall and had a deep voice that she was a little girl inside. And the, the story that I tell in the book is uh, two writers, Richard Vaxi and Tracy Gamble had just gotten their big break in television by getting hired on the Golden Girls season four. And they wrote the script and it goes to what's called a table read. But before it goes to a table read, the other writers in the room get to punch it up, which means add jokes to it, change it, do whatever they need to do to it. So they're all in consensus. This is the way the script should be for the week. And so it goes to that table read where literally all the actors and producers sit around a, a long table and they read it out loud for the first time. And the other writers, not Richard and Tracy, had added all of these jokes about how big and ugly Dorothy was. And they got to a point 
where B slammed the script down and started crying and said, you've been calling me big and ugly for four years now and I can't take it anymore and stormed out. And these two writers, Richard and Tracy thought, oh my God, we're gonna get blamed for this because our name's on the script, even though we didn't write those lines. And this was our first break and we're gonna get fired. And they went to their offices and started packing because they thought, oh, that's it for our oh. career. We offended the star and it wasn't even our fault. They did talk Bia to staying. They did promise there would be no more Dorothy bashing. They managed to, to smooth that over. However, that yes, that was something that was stuck in Bee's craw for a long time. But it did continue though, because there are later episodes. Where it continued a little, but maybe not to the same extent. To where the extent. It was, you know, you shouldn't wear anything backless. You're ugly on you. This looks terrible. Yeah. I thought I saw a big ugly man outside my window. Look at Fess Parker. I thought it was. <laughs> you know, those were pre Dorothy batching. Gotcha. Being forbidden. What did? Uh, what's your thoughts on the finale? Because I, I still cry when I want that last five minutes. Is still. I have many thoughts about the finale the one negative thought i have that i might not have kept with me had the golden palace not happened is that the the magic of the golden girls is about this fantasy that particularly for women when your mates in this case all men have either died or divorced you or cheated on you or broken your heart that your girlfriends, maybe your mother too, some, some of these women biologically related to you, some of them are family as a surrogate family, but they'll become your family and the only unit that matters and you'll live together into your dotage. Not only will you live together, you'll thrive. I mean, according to the Golden Girls, you'll have new outfits every day. <laughs> right. Men to take to charity banquets twice a week that are all handsome and well coiffed. You yourself, <laughs> when you wake up for cheesecake at 2.30 in the morning, will be in full hair and makeup. It's a fantasy. But the magic of that fantasy, that your unit will be there with you forever. And the one downer to me about the, the finale is that the message then becomes, yeah, but one of you will meet a man and put that man over the family unit and just leave. And so to me, that's a little bit, as I said, had Golden Palace not happened and had we not seen the debacle of them deciding, you know what, let's sell this comfortable house buy a hotel yeah. and work like dogs, changing sheets and cleaning toilets. And, you know, Sophia it was in her no 80s. Sense. What was she doing working like a dog? To me, that, you know, that really undercut the Golden Girls. So, so maybe that makes me feel a little worse about the finale. The things that mm. I do love about the finale are those hugs because we, the, the, it was brilliantly staged with Dorothy running in and hugging them again and again and again <laughs> until she's finally really gone. And you really get the closure of them saying how much they love each other and showing it in that kind of funnily, funny staged way. And the other thing that's really interesting is that it was based on a true story for as outlandish as it is, it, that story of her meeting Lucas and then originally as a prank saying they'd get married and then doing it for real is actually based on the true love story of Susan Harris and Paul Witt. Wow. And what happened was when they were brainstorming, what can we do as a finale for this show? Mitch Hurwitz remembered, hey, what about the real Paul and, 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 uh, and Susan story? And the real story was that Paul and Susan had dated once upon a time early in their professional relationship. They broke up as a couple and remained producing partners and were then working with Tony. But Tony Thomas made a big deal about how he was going off to Italy on this vacation. And he was bragging about my vacation's gonna be so great during one of their breaks. And so, the, he left his itinerary behind with his assistant and Paul and Susan, I guess this is how rich people pull pranks. They have a little too much time and money on their hands. <laughs> Paul and Susan thought, One, wouldn't it be great if we just showed up at the one of the restaurants he's going to be at in Italy and pretended that we were there on our honeymoon and that he had left, once he had left us unattended, we realized it was just the two of us. We loved each other again and we were getting married and he'll freak because, oh no, his two producing partners are getting married and he didn't even know about it in such a big change. He's gonna freak out, he's gonna hate it. So they did, they flew to Italy, accidentally met up with Tony and his party at this beautiful romantic restaurant where they were having dinner, pulled the gag where they said, you left us unattended and you know what? We fell in love and we got married and here we are. And rather than freak out, Tony's reaction was, I always knew you two would figure it out. I knew you loved each other and I'm so happy for you. And he raised the glass and toasted them. And after the dinner was over, now here were Paul and Susan really in romantic Italy together, 
having had Tony make a beautiful speech about their love. And they were like, huh. And you know what? They did fall in love and get married. That's, oh, that's amazing. So That makes me actually love the finale more. Yeah, now. so I mean, I, I what I love about that finale is that when you first watch it, you think how crazy that within two episodes, they can in- introduce a man who's so important to Dorothy that, right. Dorothy that she'll leave with him. But then when you hear it's based on a true story and you realize that the adage truth is stranger than fiction, you think, well, okay, now that's impressive. Yeah, that I never knew that, I don't think. Um, okay, since you brought it up, Golden Palace, it's yes. not available anywhere, right? Like you are not going to find that. There apparently are DVDs somewhere. I don't know if they were region one or, or European region or whatever, because people every once in a while post a photo of, a DV, of the DVDs. I don't have them. Um, the, I remember it air, when Lifetime was airing Golden Girls, they did a gimmick where they aired Golden Palace once straight. Through. Right. So I right. saw them again then. So I saw them in 1992 to 93. I saw them again probably 10 years later when Lifetime did that. I've really only seen the episodes twice in all this time. I think so too, yeah. And I mean, there's so many better ideas if they were going to continue it that they could have done. Like they could have moved well, to like a swing in retirement. <laughs> yes, that would have been smarter. I, I you know, part of it was I that it, this was the era when Miami Beach and South Beach was really in the news as coming back and being gentrified. So that mm. must have been on their minds. Oh, Miami, look at this part of Miami that's new and gentrified. Well, this is a new start for these women. I can see how the thought process must have worked. Yeah. But, as Mark Cherry is the one who actually said it to me, and I had been feeling this too, but he said it so brilliantly about how the original show is about the fantasy of your, your girls being there with you forever. Then Golden Palace is one of them leaves you. You have to go work like dogs in a hotel. You don't have enough money. <laughs> it's the reality. It's a total betrayal. And then, you know, Betty called it three uh, a three-legged coffee table, that it's unbalanced because it didn't have B. And I also see how the there would be a temptation to go on when you realize, well, yeah. we've got a great writing staff. We've got Betty White, Rue McClanahan, and Estelle Getty. That's not nothing. Let's try them in something. I can understand the temptation to try it, but it just turned out that when Betty says that those characters were four points on a compass, this was like a three-pointed compass. It was really missing B. And you can even see there's a two-parter episode of Golden Palace where B comes back and it's all of a sudden, it's, it's great again. It's the Right, it's the yeah. best two episodes. It's the episodes. best part of Golden Palace because now they're all together again. Yeah, of the 22 episodes or whatever right. they did. Um, so you interviewed all of them. I didn't interview Estelle because she wasn't well enough. Oh, I, was... I had been putting feelers out there about doing a book early on in about 2002. And at that time, I had been in touch with Estelle's family and her caretakers and they had said at that time, you know, maybe she could talk to you. She has good days and bad days. I don't know. By the time 2006 came around and I was really writing the book and got a book deal or whatever, they said, I'm sorry, she's just not able to do it. And so I did talk to all those people in her life, as well as Harvey Firestein and people who worked with her on Torch Song Trilogy, to really round out my portrait of her, because she was an amazing ally for the LGBT community. She was an yeah. amazing fundraiser she was a warm loving person as i've heard from everyone she didn't have an enemy in the world no one would say estelle what a bitch you know everybody loved her so to do her justice i made sure i spoke to all those people but then i did get to sit and it turns out coincidentally in their living rooms with b betty and rue and those are days i will never forget you just, i, I can't you know, like, imagine happen as you look around yeah how did uh, how did uh, each of their passing like affect you? Well, B, I had heard a few years or maybe a year before she passed that she had cancer and that she just wasn't talking. Mm-hmm. So in a way, I was ready, and she was. Well, let's see, she died in two thousand nine, so she was eighty seven. Uh, oh wow, I, I didn't realize that. Surprised when somebody's eighty seven and you've heard they have cancer and they die. But of course, devastated because it, Dorothy was my favorite character, even though it's hard to pick. Are you and a Dorothy? I loved me. I'm a Dorothy myself. And I also, from, from meeting with all of them, although I loved my time with all of them and loved all of them as people, I really felt I had a breakthrough with B, where I broke through some of her defenses and really got to see the real her, which I don't think she showed to a lot of people. And so I felt a bond with her even as a person, never mind how, all how I'd loved her work up until that moment. I felt a bond with her as a person. So I really, and I had called her a couple of times about Golden Girls book events I was doing or other stuff and invited her. And she was so sweet. Oh, honey, I'm not feeling up to it. And there'd be a reason. And they're renovating my house and I kind of live in the back room and try to stay out of their way. And 
you know, she, I don't think she wanted to talk about being sick. So it was, it was really hard. Rue was a shock because she was so much younger. And yeah. you know, I, I had, I had heard again that she had had heart problems and had problems, but I just, I, you know, naively hoped she'd pull through. So it was all tough. And with Estelle, again, when you know someone has dementia and they've really faded to that extent, not at all surprised. Yeah. I'm sure in some ways there's an element of relief that she's not suffering anymore, but of course devastated. Yeah, I know each one was always like, but yeah, it was the same with me where, because I was a Dorothy from day one. I was like, oh, that's me. <laughs> I mean, I had a period where I was a Dorothy with a Blanche rising. <laughs> all gay men want to, uh, my theory is that all gay men, when you ask which golden girl are you, they're really Dorothy, but they tell you they're Blanche. Totally, 100%. Uh, all right, Jim, I, uh, I closed with the questionnaire made famous by James Lipton and Bernard Tivo. James Lipton, whom I interviewed on camera for the Archive of American Television and asked him a questionnaire and he would not answer a single one of the questions because he needed to be in control. No way. He was, I can say this now, he's passed away. He was one of the single worst interviews I've ever done. Was he your your Alan Arkin? Well, Cloris Leachman was my Alan Arkin, but James Lipton was a close second. Oh, that breaks my heart about Cloris Leachman. You know, wonderful things about Cloris, and I loved her performance in just about everything, but she was a very tough interviewer. That's a whole other long story. Oh. It was a tough interview to him because he was used to being the interviewer. And yeah. Just didn't, I don't think he was comfortable with ceding the control that it takes to, to be the interviewed. Gotcha. Okay, well, here we go. And I'm going to try this again. I've tried this on every single episode, and I have failed. I am going to try to not respond to your response because I tend to go ooh or ow <laughs> so I'm going to try to not do that today all right what's your favorite word <sighs> Jim you knew the questionnaire <laughs> what is happiness. it happiness what is your least favorite word um, disappointment what turns uh, what turns you on or excites you comedy funny being funny what sound do you love? Uh, used to be the sound of opening a Diet Coke and now I'm Diet Coke sober. So I am gonna have to say, what sound do I love? I think it's the sound of, I know this sounds really needy. I think it's the sound of a text message because it's usually from somebody I really adore. Oh, I like that. See, I already failed. Uh, what sound do you not like? Oh, uh, what sound do I not like? Mm, there's got to be a lot of them. Uh, I don't know. I, th- I think uh, <laughs> when the, I was only on one game show, but the sound when you get it wrong is never fun. <laughs> <laughs> What's your favorite curse word? Oh, uh, you know, I'm, I, I'm, cla- I'm going to follow B. Arthur's lead and, and go with the classic C word. It never fails. Uh, what profession other than yours would you like to attempt? It's so close to mine. I've written about sitcoms so much. I want to, I want, you know, if I, if we if were a perfect world where you could just be offered the opportunity to do this, I would want to act on one, but it, it ain't going to happen. I know. I would love to see you write a vehicle for Frank. Uh, uh, what profession I've would tried you, it. <laughs> what profession would you not like to participate in? Just about anything that requires physical labor, dealing with food. I am the prissiest, laziest person. I had to be a writer. <laughs> Getting up early. <laughs> Getting up early, that's one thing. Yeah. Yes. You know what, I, right. I, I have to say, I don't want this to sound patronizing, but one of the reasons why I get so mad, particularly these days when we're all struggling with COVID and we're all struggling to get back to work, when I see someone mistreat a server or someone who's doing yeah. it, taking out the garbage or anything like that or treat them badly is because I just think how... I would hate to have to do that job. And I'm so 100%. squeamish. I mean, Frank and I, after doing his show at Rockefeller Center on Sirius every Wednesday, used to go to a Wendy's at the base of one of the buildings at Rockefeller Center. Mm-hmm. And there was always this cheery woman who would stand by the garbage pail and hold open the little lid so you could put yours, or she'd take it and throw it away for you. And then she'd have to be the one who'd take out the plastic liner and tie up the Gosh. garbage. And I thought, how does she smile? Because I would right. be 
I am squeamish about other people's food. I'm gross about it, grossed out about everything. I hate when people are rude. And I thought, you know, I always want to at least say thank you to that woman because she's doing something I would never want to do. So when you ask what job would you never want to do, it's so many things. And I just have to be thankful that I do get to do what I do want to do because there have got to be people who are doing the tough jobs. And I'm grateful very, to do it. Very same. All right, last question is, uh, if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? <laughs> Frank is going to make fun of me because the first thing that came to mind is I'm such a Virgo. The thing I want to hear God, is, God say is you were right about everything. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> well, Jim, thank you so much. Uh, I appreciate your time. And um, I think we'll, we'll, we'll do this again after your, your All in the Family book comes out. Which is very time. soon. I just October, got an email right? today from Rizzoli that the physical books arrived at Rizzoli today. <laughs> and so I should be getting my copy tomorrow of, of All in the exciting. Family, the show that changed television. And so, yes, it comes out in October. That's exciting. Okay, well, hold tight uh, with me, but thank you so much. And, thank you. Uh, this friends, was so much fun. I had, I had a blast. All right, friends, until next time. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to follow me on Instagram at There Once Was a Yogi. Also, I have a YouTube channel if you want to practice yoga or meditation with me, also under There Once Was a Yogi. And be sure to follow and leave a review. Thanks.